Please have a seat. Well, thank you, worship team. Wasn't that great? I told first service it's always so nice to come on the back side of a worship set that is encouraging and just really ministers to my heart. My name is Jed. It's a privilege to serve you as one of our pastors on staff, and we're so glad that you would join us this Sunday morning. Britt is celebrating his 40th wedding anniversary with Cindy. You can clap for that. That is amazing. I have the privilege of continuing a series that we're doing called Enjoy, where we are studying through the book, otherwise the letter of Philippians, which was written by the Apostle Paul to the church that he founded in Philippi. And the series is called Enjoy because each week we are talking about how we, like the Apostle Paul and like the recipients of this letter, can enjoy life in the midst of whatever we are facing, which certainly does seem impossible at times. And so the Apostle Paul uses the word joy or rejoice 16 times in this letter, and ironically, he is imprisoned as he writes, which again doesn't seem like the breathing grounds for joy. But if we remember that joy in the Greek literally means an awareness of God's grace, we can begin to see as Paul writes why and how he can write with such steadfast conviction concerning God's goodness and activity in his life. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, it will be up there on the screens. I'm reading out of the NRSV, and it says this, beginning in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And the same way you also must be glad and rejoice with me. Again, this is the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church in Philippi. He is imprisoned. The situation seems dire and dark, and yet he speaks of rejoicing. In preparation for this message, I went around the other week and I asked a few of our staff members, at least those that were on site that day, a particular question. And here are some of the responses that they gave. Megan Dern, our children's ministry associate, said this, When I graduated college, and I proceeded to ask her why, and she said, because someone told me that I couldn't do it, but I did it. I worked hard. I graduated, and I paid for it, too. 
Danny Sugimoto, our middle school pastor, and I posed the question. He said there was a season after college, after he himself had graduated, when he wasn't sure whether or not he was actually called to ministry, not because it wasn't something that he wanted to do, but because the situation surrounding whether or not he could work at a church didn't seem like it was going to work out, and yet here he is all these years later as our middle school pastor. Mojo, our high school pastor, talked about uh, competitions when he was a kid, the endless hours that he put into practicing his violin. Pam Dvorak, our uh, women's ministry director, she talked about when she was a young Christian and she was in this thing called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship. She wasn't too long in the faith and she was asked to be the substitute teacher for BSF. And if you know Pam, she's very honest about how scared she was. She said, I was scared out of my mind, but I was obedient. And she said, it grew my face 1,000%. That's a big percentage. And then Heather Fretz, our director of groups and connections, when I asked her the question, at first she said, when I graduated college, I just started crying. And she teased that out a little bit, but then she paused and she said, you know what? It's actually something else. It was a few years ago when I was diagnosed with cancer. And when the doctors were talking to me about treatment, I said, I want to do this the hardest and the right way. Give me everything that you've got. And then Britt Seip, our lead pastor, when I asked him the question, at first he joked and said, well, it's hard for me to pick one. Uh, Then he talked about raising his daughters and seeing his three women now that he and Cindy raised with their own beautiful families and where they are. And then he said, and of course, 40 years of marriage. And anyone that's been married knows that staying married is certainly an accomplishment, let alone four decades of that. So I just tipped my cards a little bit in that last sentence, even without meaning to do it. But here's the question that I asked our staffers. What is your greatest accomplishment. What's your greatest accomplishment? What's the thing that you are perhaps proudest of, this thing that worked you into the ground, this thing that tested your grit and your tenacity, your endurance, and whether or not there was purpose behind the decision that you were making? Another way I could pose this question is, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? I don't know what it is for you. I would hope and I imagine none of you in this room would say my greatest accomplishment is taking a nap or eating my vegetables. That's an accomplishment for my 10-month-old child, but not for you as a grown adult. So what would you say? What beat you up? What did you fight through? At what point were you holding on for dear life? What is your greatest accomplishment. I imagine some of us have a moment in time that we can cite quickly. Others of us have to spend time wrestling and ask ourselves that question, but this message is entitled Joy in Accomplishment because as human beings, God has wired us with the ability to experience accomplishment, and that is an incredibly important thing for us to be able to feel and work towards. And if you're concerned that I'm talking about a legalistic way of earning salvation, I would hope that you see and hear throughout the duration of this message that is certainly not the case. 
But the Apostle Paul himself, if we read him closely in the other corpus of his letters, we see that hard work and determination and effort and will are all a part of how he considers salvation, deliverance, being worked out. And so I go back to verse 12, which says this, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I want to talk about five elements of accomplishment this morning that we will see throughout these several verses. And the first is this, it begins with a choice. It always begins with a choice. There are people that have cited this statistic, but really it's pop psychology. I haven't seen any scientific or empirical evidence to attest to it, but I've heard online people say that we make 35,000 choices or decisions a day. Again, that's pop psychology. I wouldn't hang my hat on that. But I can see and understand and sympathize with the idea that we make choice after choice after choice. Every single word that we say is a choice. Every single thought, the look of our eye, the things that we do, how you brush your teeth, even though that's subconscious, you brush your teeth the same way every single time. I start back here. Do you know where you brush your teeth? I didn't do that in first service. That just came to me right now. Um, every choice that we make results in a consequence or perhaps something to celebrate. There's something that happens when we choose, and that's something that Mallory, my wife, and I want our three boys to learn, that there's responsibility. There's something that's important about realizing that our decisions highly affect the outcome of things in our life. We'll look at it later, but in Galatians 6, verse 7, Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And I want our boys to realize that even though there are certainly things far outside of their control, to trust God is to realize that he has entrusted us with much to steward. Jesus talks about stewardship throughout his ministry. It is a component of our lives. What will we do with what we have been given? When we see in the English to work out your own salvation, the word work out there is Greek word katergaiste, which comes from the Greek word katergazmai. Literally, it means to work down to the end point to work you see they're accomplished to effect by labor and Paul is speaking to something that we may not always be cognizant of but the reality is our salvation our ongoing deliverance from sin is something that we actually have a part in a theologically dense word that you've heard before perhaps is sanctification the reality of our lives and our identity merging the longer that we walk in step with the Spirit and follow Jesus. What does it mean for you and I to understand that our experience with the grace of God comes down to how we choose to live? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, after Paul embarks on this beautiful section that we term the ministry of reconciliation, he says this to the Corinthians, we urge you as fellow co-workers of God not to take the grace of God in vain. 
In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, after another great section, he says this, And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, we have a choice. Uh, last week, I'm not exactly sure why I decided to. I don't get to watch much TV, but I happened to log on to our Netflix accounts. I was uh, looking at the Power Rangers and shows that our kids were watching uh, just to make sure, you know, they weren't watching anything too crazy. Um, and, and somehow I, I mean, I chose, I'm acting like as if like I didn't have any role in this. I chose to uh, watch documentaries on CrossFit. And how many of you have heard of CrossFit before? Of course you have. Someone has tried to convince you it's the only way, like it's God's plan for your life. I don't CrossFit, uh, but it looks incredibly intense to me, and I really appreciated the documentaries that I watched. I actually had our middle son, Titus. He's, he's kind of our ambitious one, and he was watching these incredibly fit people alongside me at the Reebok CrossFit Games, the fittest people on earth, and little three-and-a-half-year-old Titus said, I'm going to do that or I'm going to do that, or however he sounds. And I said, you go for it, buddy. No, Dad, I'm going to do that. And I'm like, okay, bud, you go ahead and prove me. I want to say right, because I actually believe that he can do it. One of the things I appreciated about that documentary and my son getting to see is that these athletes were undergoing incredibly difficult training. And yes, there was a camera there, but there were countless hours and minutes and seconds of work and repetition and sweat that no one else saw. And so that when they went to the greatest stage, when they were completing their workout in the midst of something incredibly grueling, all the time and energy and effort was paying off on the field. It's important for us to acknowledge that the physical and the spiritual certainly parallel one another. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, a passage I memorized early on when I first started working out. Paul writes to this young pastor, Timothy, and says, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value over all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. In other words, if you think working out physically is important, well, what about your spiritual life? Because that has practical, real-life, physical implications for everything around you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, about how all runners run a race to win a prize. And he says, run in such a way to win a prize. A few verses later, he talks about how he does not run aimlessly or like a boxer beat the air without knowing what he is doing. He says, I do this. I enslave and punish my body. So after preaching to others, I myself might not be disqualified. Do you see the intensity of choice that is here? And isn't it a wonderful thing that instead of us just blaming life or things around us for how they're unfolding, we can realize that God has given us the free will and choice to steward as much as we possibly can. I think about salvation sometimes as a pair of good running shoes, and I'm not a runner by any means. I hate to run. I think I've gone on three runs in my entire life. A few weeks from now, you are going to hear about Team World Vision, where we are going to be encouraging some of you to take the call and invitation to walk or run a half or full marathon, the LA Marathon. Wow, some of you guys are excited. 
Every time the challenge gets issued, I feel like, oh man, that would be so great, but you know, someone has to stay back here and teach while Britt's out there running and everyone's out there, so I'll just stay here. It's all good. I'll support you and pray for you. Um, Running to me, which is physical imagery that we see in Scripture, and the idea of salvation coinciding with shoes is, is something that I think about because good shoes can be gifted to you. God's grace and salvation is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, not my works so that no one may boast. Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work it out. And if I were to give you a good pair of running shoes that I purchased and spent money on, it would be somewhat alarming to me if you walked around and said, look at these sweet kicks that I purchased. I'm so glad that I bought these shoes. I spent so much money on this, and now I'm going to go run. No. They're a gift. And you could choose to put those shoes inside your closet and go, man, those are incredibly great shoes. I'm so glad I was given them. Or you could put them on and go outside and get them dirty and let your feet hit the concrete and work and take steps and grind and follow through and experience I'm going to say the joy, even though I've never experienced the joy of running. I'm assuming you can experience the joy of running, especially if you have something to work towards. So I think we're all on the same page about choice and decision and working things out and the implications of our free will. But the part here that I think we get concerned about or troubles us a little bit is the second part of this clause. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we are quick and understandably so to cast fear aside. We sang multiple songs that talk about fear being no more. And when I prepare for messages, the way that I do this is I just read the passage of Scripture over and over and over again. And when I start putting thoughts together that might buttress a big idea, I just start typing out Scripture that I've memorized over the years or passages that hit me, that remind me of what is going on. And of course, when I was in Philippians chapter 2, I could not help but think about 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And it says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. It's a popular one that we have heard, yes? Yes. So then why does Paul say to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Maybe we will describe and define fear as a reverence and respect and awe for God, which is certainly a piece of that. But again, as I was preparing, my mind could not help but go to a passage that we see in Luke chapter 12 that also parallels Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus has words that I don't remember the last sermon I heard someone teach on because they're kind of uncomfortable. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. And if you're here this morning and you brought a friend and you're like, oh no, what did I do? The pastor said hell. I, I did. 
And, and if you are here, you haven't been coming here very often, and you haven't heard us talk about this before, I hope that I steward this wisely, and I hope there's something about how I talk through this passage that really highlights Jesus as Savior and maybe gives you some great insight into what Jesus is talking about, this reality of hell. Now, here's, here's the truth. I thought first service was one of the worst messages I've ever taught. I mean, I, I stepped off the stage, and you want to talk about the enemy doing a number on my brain? I walked off the stage and thought, man, I screwed that up. I did not do that well. When I teach on Sunday mornings, I, I, I help Mallory as much as I can, put the boys down. I sometimes fail at that, like last night. They were still up when I left. But I, I come and I sleep here at church in my office because I get anxious about missing my alarm. And I've had all these dreams in the past of waking up at like 9.20 and they're, where's Jed? And I'm like, I don't have a sermon. So I just... You know, I come and sleep at church to help prevent that, and it hasn't failed me yet. So I did that again last night. I usually go to the youth room. I shoot some hoops, and I just, throughout the week, but in particular Saturday, I just preach thousands of messages to myself. God, what's going to hit? What's going to convict me? How can I go up and not have empty bullets? How can I be convicted about what you want to share? Can you get a hold of me? And last night... Truth be told, I came and I couldn't stomach going into the youth room to shoot hoops. I just sat in my office. And I kept thinking about this section. By the way, it's 11 08. You know, I don't mean to keep you till 1 o'clock, but I spent a lot of time in this first section if you're wondering how we're ever going to get through our notes. I'll try and speed up in a little bit. This is important. And I, uh, amen. Thank you. I wish we did that more. <laughs> I. I just laid in bed on my cot, and I just kept thinking, how am I going to do this responsibly? And I was praying, God, would you protect our ears? I'm a fallible human being. I get things wrong, but I have a responsibility to teach the truth. Your word says Jesus was filled with grace and truth. He doesn't cut corners. And so here are some things that I would like to bring forward about hell. Number one, the word hell that we have in the English, we get from the Greek word Gehenna, which transliterated, we can say Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A. Maybe you've heard that before. And it's important to note that in the Greek, because when Jesus is speaking, although it's in Aramaic, and he's talking to the disciples about Gehenna, or Gehenna, every single person listening knew what he was talking about, because it was and is a physical place that they could actually go and see. They could take a field trip to hell if they wanted to. It was on the south side, outside of the city gates of Jerusalem. And some have surmised that that became the local dump site, that that's where carcasses and all things were burned, which is where we would get the metaphorical imagery of fire that Jesus talks about. But there's actually something that we know for certain that's much more troubling than just trash being sent outside of the city. In the Old Testament, we have a few instances 
where we see this place called the Valley of Hinnom, or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, or Gehinnom. And this is a place that is so scrutinized because it is here in this valley where the Ammonite god Molech apparently requires people to sacrifice their children to make them pass through the fire. And in Israelite history, we have a few kings from the Judean side of the dynasty King Ahaz, notably, who makes his own children, you see it in Scripture, pass through the fire. And God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is so upset about this preposterous act. He even says in Jeremiah chapter 32, this thought never entered into my mind, God says. The idea that parents would have their children walk through fire and die in fire burdens and burns the heart of God, so much so that he pronounces judgment on anyone that would do that, and the result would be themselves being slaughtered and destroyed there. It's pretty gnarly imagery, yes? So what's ironic about what Christians have done throughout the centuries is that we have talked about hell as this place where, again, ironically, God would send people to eternally be punished and languished by fire and torment. It's a little bit ironic to me. Here's what I want to make clear. Hell is real. Hell is real. But if we look at the most consistent way that eternal life is juxtaposed in the New Testament, we will see that the opposite of life is death. Paul writes in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is, and the gift of God is, eternal life. John 3, 16, as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus under the shade or cover of darkness, he reveals to him, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. In the same letter in Philippians chapter 3, we have the apostle Paul talking about how the end of the godless is there destruction. So here's what I would like for you to consider. That when we talk about hell and this real place, you consider less of a languishing in flames, but more an eternal separation from God, which would certainly be the worst thing possible. Hell is real. It's death and separation eternally from God. And it's so real that the implications of hell and what we see in our life, just like Jesus as he talked about the Valley of Hinnom, this terrible thing, we see in our world today the effect of the enemy, Satan's work in this planet. We see hell here, just like Jesus could cite with the Valley of Hinnom. Here's another thing that I would like for us to consider about hell. And if, again, if you're new here, I hope that you hear my heart in this. I am not the type of person, nor will I ever be, as far as I'm concerned, that would stand on a street corner and preach and yell about fire and brimstone hell. You want to know why? Of the 12 times the word Gehenna is in the New Testament, 11 times Jesus 
is the one that employs it. The other time is James in his letter where he talks about how cursing other human beings made in the image of God comes from this tongue, this small body part that's set on fire by Gehenna. Again, the parallel there. Jesus, when he speaks about hell, you want to know who he's talking to usually? His disciples. Out of the 11 times Jesus employs Gehenna, Nine times he's speaking directly to his disciples like we find here, and two other times he is talking to the Pharisees. And you want to know what Jesus goes after? What he says hell will consume and burn up? He talks about hating a brother or sister. He talks about lust and adultery. He talks about hypocrisy. And he talks about being ashamed and denying him, which actually falls in this section of Luke. I'd like to add, however, that it's so amazing, the grace of God, that the disciples who Jesus says very clearly, if you are ashamed of me and deny me before men, the Son of Man will deny you before the angels. Jesus, one who says that, these very same disciples end up denying Jesus and being ashamed of him. And yet he restores them. The juxtaposition of hell and heaven, of death and eternal life, ought to magnify the choice that we have in the goodness of God and his grace. That would say that the existential crises of death and ceasing to exist can be and is remedied by Jesus Christ and him alone. Look at Jesus' words to the disciples. It seems paradoxical, which is such at the heart of Scripture. If you'd like to talk about that more, I'd be happy to talk to you about that apart from this place. Paradox is when things that seem contradictory actually, after further investigation, can seem to be proved right. Look at Jesus after he says, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. But even the hairs of your head are all counted. Do not be afraid. You are of more values than many sparrows. You see the pastoral heart and shepherding heart of Jesus? Hell, death, eternal separation from God is real. Jesus acknowledges And even if you don't have a biblical or Christian worldview, we all know at some point this muscle in our chest stops and existence ends. So I would have you consider that whether or not you believe in that, it's going to happen. And yet Jesus says we do not need to fear that, which is why decades later the Apostle John, who was with Jesus when he said these things, can say perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And we don't have to fear the punishment. We don't have to fear being eternally separated from God because of Jesus. What's that? You guys ready to move through this note sheet? (laughs) It's 1117. All right. Okay. Hey, come on. Um... The second part of accomplishment, it is fueled by purpose. You see, that first bit is, it begins with the choice is the what. It's fueled by purpose is the why. Everything that we do that has meaning ought to have a why behind it, something that drives 
what we are doing, what we're attempting to accomplish. I love in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, when Paul, again, similar language, says, it is he whom we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone in all wisdom so to present the mature in Christ. And I love what he says after, for this reason I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. I love that. The purpose to present everyone mature in Christ, ourselves included, which would have Paul wrestling, grapples what he terms the energy that God's inspired within him, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, which again we are teaching out of, when after saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul writes, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we know then, we've seen in our lives, and we can see in Scripture that if we are on God's program, if we are walking in step with the Spirit, if we are yielding and being and choosing to be obedient to Him, then it will always be met with resistance. And that's the next point. It is met with resistance. Last night when I was struggling through what I would say, I was thinking about 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, which says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Discipline yourself. Stay alert, for he knows the enemy. Your adversary roars around like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing steadfast in your faith. For you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same types of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, he himself will restore, strengthen, and support you. I was memorizing and reciting that scripture myself. I felt resistance as I prepared. And I'll tell you, first service didn't go very well. I'm serious. And I felt that. I feel a little bit better right now. Here's what's fascinating about resistance as Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2. It's not as I would like to say, it's not this blaming just the devil and saying, well, that was just the devil, that was just the devil, even though, again, the spiritual parallels what we see playing out here in front of us. There is spiritual warfare all around us. You can read Ephesians chapter 6 about that. It's consistent throughout Scripture from beginning to end. But look at what Paul writes. This is where it really begins to take practical root. Not that the other stuff wasn't practical, but if there's a verse I'd like you to memorize, look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without murmuring and arguing. Uh, other translations say do all things without grumbling or complaining. Ooh. We are a culture that loves to complain. We love to grumble and we love to argue. You want to talk about resisting what God is doing? Just start complaining. Okay? If you want to stop the good work of God, just start complaining about things. And Christians, we're really good at that. We love to complain. We love to complain about things going on at church that we would do better or make things better. But why? 
do we complain incessantly without realizing that perhaps there's a better way for us to proceed and move forward? That's part of the problem of the church in Philippi. There is infighting here. In a few weeks when I teach in chapter 4, you'll see that there are two prominent, wonderful women who are in the middle of relational strife. I really do believe that Philippians, if you read it from start to finish, you'll see Paul is setting up like jab, jab, right hook. At the end, when we hear Eudia and Syntyche and what they're struggling with, the whole time he's been preparing them to hear those words. Do all things without murmuring and arguing. If you want to not stop, I should say, the work of God, then rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 through 19. Point number four, accomplishment. It's marked by endurance. Every single thing that those staff members shared, every single difficult thing that you and I have persevered through has been marked by perseverance. It's been marked by endurance. I could have brought this up earlier in Second Peter chapter 1. Peter writes about how we ought to make every effort to support our faith with goodness and the goodness knowledge and knowledge self-control and the self-control endurance and to endurance godliness and the godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection and love. Right there in the middle he talks about endurance. It's that grit and grind that pushes through and says, I know why I'm doing this. I know my purpose behind this. I am going to continue to submit and be obedient to you, God, even if the things around me might temporarily not seem to reward what I am doing. Again, Galatians chapter 6, verses 7, says this. If I can get there. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right. For we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. How clear, or how much clearer can it get? The way Paul writes this in Philippians, he says, After do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. I love the imagery here. If you ever looked up at the starry expanse, I'm not a scientist, I just Googled it, I'd heard it before. But what we see in the starry expanse is actually something from the past. Light travels apparently, I don't know how they figure this out, this is amazing. Apparently it travels at 186,000 miles per second. I don't get that, okay? I don't get light years, or I tried reading it about it, I tried to understand it more, but that's just scientists. If you can explain it to me, I'd welcome you to explain it to me. I think I understand the gist of what is being said, though. Light is traveling through time pushing through the darkness, and what we see has pushed through from the past. It has pressed forward, and accomplishment can only happen 
It's only real if it continues to inspire. That's legacy. That's impact. That's generational change. When we see the stars shining in the sky, we're reminded that our lives and we are obedient and live out in faith and confidence of who Jesus is and what he has done in this generation impacts those that come after us. And you and I need to take that more seriously. Because there's a generation coming behind us that we're in the midst of. You and I are actually all a part of it in some form or fashion that is not shining like bright lights. We ourselves are succumbing to the darkness. We're not called to be dark. We're called to be light. And Jesus himself is the light of the world. So why not stake our claim in him? It continues to inspire and so then Paul writes, it's by your holding fast, your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as libation or the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. You see the mutual inspiration? Paul writes, as they hold fast to the word of life, He's receiving something from that. He feels and knows that his work isn't in vain. Several years later, towards the end of his life, Paul uses similar language. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, it says, As for me, I am already being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. The imagery of the libation was wine that was poured out over the the altar, sacrificing, and it would produce, it singed this aroma and smoke that would go up. This idea of an offering and a fragrant smell being sent out. He says in verse 7, and perhaps you've heard it at memorials before, a verse that I hope is read someday at mine, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I've fought the good fight. I've run the race. I've kept the faith. You want to know what joy comes from? It comes from living out of the abundance of Christ's accomplishment his redemptive work in, through, and around you and me. You see, the the beauty of all this is we've been talking about accomplishment, but really, it's not ours. It's his. And to accomplish in Christ is to realize that the ways that he has chosen to accomplish in this world is for us to be his hands and feet. The way that he has chosen to accomplish in this world is to send us out as his ambassadors. The way that he has chosen to accomplish in this world is to commission us to go and make disciples of all nations. That is how God has chosen to accomplish much in this world. And it's the Holy Spirit in and through you and me. I don't make this stuff up. We don't have to try and figure out what comes next. We stick to the program and what he has called us, invited and challenged us to do. And if we do that, As Peter writes in chapter 1, we are receiving the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. There's goodness and there's eternal life that begins here and now. It's important that you and I do not miss that here 
today to keep the faith, to run this race, to fight hard is part of how God wants to accomplish in this world because he doesn't want the world to look at us and say, look at all those quitters, look at all those hypocrites, look at all those people who are relying on their own strength and actually can't get it together. So may I remind you and myself of something. Maybe this morning when I asked you about your greatest accomplishment, you couldn't think of that thing because you're in the middle of so much right now that you barely feel like you're holding on. I got a call from this grandmother, and and if you're out here, I apologize for not calling you back. It was right before our Thursday's lunch, but this grandmother called on on Thursday looking for Brit, and he wasn't here. He's on vacation. She left a voicemail, and, and apparently her grandson, who would have been one on the 21st, is no longer here with us. And I hear that, and how can you think about any accomplishment in that season when your heart just is breaking? Last week, I met with a couple whose son passed away after fighting cancer valiantly last year, and, and the mom, it was her first time back in church since his memorial was held here, and, and it was tears when I could see the trigger of just being in this place. How can you think about accomplishment when you're barely holding on. This is where the beauty of paradox again works. When Jesus reveals to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My greatest accomplishment will be clinging to his. Because I'm a skeptic by nature, I'm prone to wander, is that old great hymn? I'm a fallible, sinful human being just like you. But I guarantee you, I'm going to fight with all my might. And I'm going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I am going to attempt to keep this faith. And I believe as Paul writes at the beginning of Philippians, that he who began a work in me, just like you, he'll see it to completion. And for all the times when I'm ready to give up, he's got me. And I believe that about all of us as well. I'd like to close out with just a very practical thing that I'm going to invite you to do to help us accomplish this by. This is the last fill in the blank for you. By coming to church next week, joining us next Sunday. That's that's my invite. Next Sunday is Vision Sunday. I've got this black t-shirt here that has our vision statement on it. Deep in faith, bring hope, live love. When Britt became our lead pastor three years ago, that passage from 1 Corinthians 13 really inspired him. Faith, hope, and love, right? These, these, these three things remain. And this was the vision statement that, that God brought to him that he has used to inform our ministry initiatives and how and what we do here to help us accomplish our mission. Sunridge Community Church exists to help people find and follow Jesus. I want to invite you to come back next week. I want to invite you to come back and be here and be a part of what God is accomplishing. We need you here. And if you've been coming to church for any amount of time, or you're just getting back into it, or you've been here at Sunridge for years, or whatever it is, and you've been showing up, you've been kind of standing through some of the songs, maybe every every now and then you're singing, you've been hearing these messages, I would 
implore you to consider that you are missing out, we are missing out if we do not choose to be a part of what God is doing in a way that's so much better than just attending and then complaining about what we didn't like. So to invite you to do that, I'd like you to stand up and read the words of the Apostle Paul when he writes to the churches in the regions of Ephesus. And I'd like for us to say these words together to hear ourselves speak these truths to remind us about God's accomplished work in and through us. It comes from Ephesians chapter 3. Here it is. Read it together. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Can you get with that? That's good stuff. And that's why we're here. And that's where we're going. And we want to invite you to be a part of that. You can purchase t-shirts in the hallway. Wear those next week. It's about so much more than a t-shirt. We're inviting you to be a part of real change here that God is responsible for. And we are going to steward to the very best of our ability. Let us pray.